Come on, dog. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. How are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Very nice to be with you again, taking a walk on uh, kind of a grey autumn day in late November 2019, out here in the East Anglian countryside. Let's give you some uh, leaf action. The sound of leaves there. I suppose for balance we should have the sound of remains, although that would be a little macabre. (laughs) Brexit. Hey, look, speaking of that and much else besides, I don't know if you knew, but there is a general election on December the 12th of this year, 2019, and uh, it's going to be great fun. Maybe some of you listening are eligible to vote but are not yet registered. If so, or if you're not sure, follow the link in the description of this podcast and register to take part in this very important election. It only takes five minutes to register, really not very long. The deadline for registering to vote in the 12th of December election is uh, the end of the day on Tuesday, the 26th of November. If you're listening to this in the future and it's all happened, what's it like in the land of hugging and non-stop kindness? Ooh, that sounds sexy. Bet you're glad you voted. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about my guest for podcast number 110, the British mentalist, he's a mentalist, illusionist and author, Darren Brown. Darren facts. Darren, currently aged 48, came to the attention of UK television audiences with his show Mind Control back in 2000. And since then, in various TV series and specials, he has, and I quote now from his website, played Russian roulette live, convinced middle managers to commit armed robbery, led the nation in a seance, stuck viewers at home to their sofas, successfully predicted the national lottery, motivated a shy man to land a packed passenger plane at 30,000 feet. Well, he landed it at 30,000 feet. That's not landing, that's hovering. Hypnotised a man to assassinate Stephen Fry and created a zombie apocalypse for an unsuspecting participant after seemingly ending the world. Just a few of the memorable moments that Darren has created on TV. In addition to the TV work, Darren has toured with eight one-man stage shows up to this point and he has written five books. If you haven't read Darren's books yet... I would start with Tricks of the Mind. That's a good one. Amongst other things, it includes fascinating insights into the psychology of magic and uh, hypnosis. We talked a little bit about hypnosis in this podcast. I also really enjoyed the 2017 book, Happy, 
which Darren, as you will hear, calls an anti-self-help self-help book. And it draws on various works of psychology and philosophy to encourage new ways of thinking about, well, making the most of our lives, I suppose. I quote from the blurb, We are trapped inside our own heads. Our beliefs and understandings about the world are limited by that perspective. Of course, then, we mistake that story we've constructed of our lives as the truth. As if all that wasn't enough, Darren is also a talented photographer, and if you've never seen the caricatures that he paints, mainly of celebrities, actors and the such, I recommend opening a browser ASAP and typing in Darren Brown caricatures, whereupon your mind will blow. They're amazing. As I speak, Darren is in New York. He's performing his show Secret on Broadway. But he's back in the UK and touring Showman, his first new show for five years from March of next year, 2020. You can find details on Darren's official website, link in the description of this podcast. The conversation that you will hear today was recorded in Darren's East London home back in February of last year, 2018. Apologies for not having put this one out sooner. It was all set to go out. Then we ran into some scheduling conflicts and then it just fell victim to me being just a terrible, badly organised person. But Darren was very nice about it yesterday. I emailed him to let him know it was finally going out and uh, he has only put a very mild evil spell on me, which was nice. Back at the end for a bit more solo waffle, including news of my 2020 UK book tour. That's right. And a Radio 4 show that I'm presenting, which is on next week, that I think you will enjoy. But right now, with the always fascinating Darren Brown. Here we go. When I told a friend that I was coming to see you, they said that a friend of theirs had been at a dinner party and they were all nervous because they thought you were reading their minds. And I wasn't even there. Was I at the dinner party? You were at the dinner party. All right. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I I do wonder if that's what people think I'm doing. I guess some people must do. Yeah. But you're not aware of that. It literally never crosses my mind to be that person when I'm with somebody because I'm not. I think we've just such an exhausting way of being for everybody no i had a i've got a good friend who said that like it took him a couple of times of us just meeting and going out for him to let go of that possibility that right. i was doing every, every gesture everything i did every time i lifted up a cup apparently i picked up a cup and put it back down without drinking it and that kept him up that night as to what that meant i guess most people regard you as someone who has a superpower mm. which is mind reading Mm. and being able to deconstruct the way people behave and pick up on signs and understand what they're thinking at a deeper level than most people can. So you don't feel like you have a superpower, or do you? No, I don't feel like I have a superpower. 
I try to give the impression of it. Somebody in my line of business years ago, I can't remember who it was, said that it's about using your five senses to give the impression of a sixth, Mm -hmm. which I quite like. So yes, there's certainly nothing, A, nothing magical about it from a sort of like, you know, psychic, that sort of point of view. And as for the sort of, you know, hypersensitivity to body cues and all of that, that's largely the effect that I try and create as well. But it's that, that gets into a grey area because some of that is real. You know, and I started off as a hypnotist, so a lot of the suggestion skills and that type of thing is real. But then I also became a magician after that, so a lot of it's also more kind of like conjuring based. So that's a kind of a, that's a bit of a, a grey area. What, what I sort of tried to do in more recent years is to make, at least with the stage shows, the TV shows have sort of become their own thing, these people going on these sort of dark journeys. I've tried to make those about, I don't know, something dramatic, because it's not very dramatic if you're a magician going, look at me, that's not a, not, it's a very bad premise for drama. So with the stage shows, I've just tried to make the point of the shows about something else other than me and my inverted commas skill set, or, you know, because then I think it's, I think things are more interesting if they're not about you. And I, I, I think particularly with the current show that I'm doing, Underground, it's, it, I realise that magic of any sort is a very good metaphor for the kind of stories that we tell ourselves in life all the time. The way we just fall for little narratives, which we need to form because the world is this infinitely complex data source. We need to navigate through that. We, need to, we do need to reduce things to neat stories full of, you know, neat characters and things that don't really exist in, in, in real life. But the danger is, of course, then it is highly reductionist and it leaves us with a very weak understanding of what's going on. And magic is a great metaphor for that. That's exactly what we're doing. We're falling for a story that we're being told. Uh, we're joining up the dots wrongly. So I, that's what I've tried to do, is just to shift the focus away from the less interesting question of what my skills are to, I think, the more resonant question of, of what you know what value that might have. Yeah, because you're interested in psychology, and, hmm. and you, you, I, I really enjoyed your book Happy. Oh, thank you. Where you weave together some of the philosophy and psychology that you've read over the years. Yeah. With a general, I mean, you describe it as anti self help self help book. Yeah. yeah. So it's great. I mean, I, I really enjoy it because I like all that sort of stuff as well. You're much better read than I when it comes to the philosophy. But there's a bit of crossover with some of the psychologists, Daniel Kahneman and all those mm. types of people who mm. are so interesting yeah. on the patterns yeah. and the little lies we tell ourselves yeah. and the, the, uh, yeah, the patterns of thought we fall into. And obviously you must use a familiarity with those patterns a lot in what you do when you're directing a new show. I mean, mm. you've got this thing, The Push, which is now, they're showing it on Netflix, aren't they now? That's right, yeah. So I've uh, signed up with Netflix, and so it's currently February, Yeah. so nothing's gone out on Netflix yet. But the first one is The Push. So we've given them two specials that I've already done, one of which is, is The Push. So they'll go out. That was originally called... Push to the Edge. Never yeah. liked that title. Uh-huh. We always wanted to call it The Push. Channel 4 liked Push to the Edge. So it's quietly satisfying to just nudge it back to The Push. Yeah. And then a third one, which is a brand new Netflix original which is kind of what's really exciting is getting the little trailers and things back and just seeing the netflix logo at the start uh-huh. and all that it's kind of it's kind of nice are you a netflix guy i'm a bit of a netflix guy yeah yeah so the brand the brand yes. new brand new one will go out probably i'm hoping sort of in in the autumn I'm, I'm editing that at the moment maybe by the time this goes out it'll all be you know done and dusted and everyone will know what it is but for the moment it's it's uh under wraps mm. but in that kind of show you are you're like a director almost creating mm. an experience. Yeah. Did you get any shit for the push? 
because it's like when you describe it to people, it sounds like quite an extreme thing. Like how how yeah. would you pitch it for people who haven't seen it? The push is a big social experiment to see whether through social compliance somebody can be manipulated to murder somebody else. Brackets push them off the top of a building. Yeah. And yeah, I suppose like a lot of the stuff, not all of the stuff, but a lot of the stuff I've done, it's sort of quite you know, it's a dark journey that someone's going on. Perhaps because I only do like one of these a year or so, there's a lot of room around making these shows to make sure people are very well taken care of and there's a huge duty of care aspect to making something like this. Not all of which is, it really ends up in the show because it's not necessarily when you want to get on with telling the story there's only so much of that that you can really show. So often I have people sort of, you know, say, well, how do you know these people are going to be all right and this is terrible and blah, 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 which I, yeah, I understand that reaction but at the same time the reality is everyone that's done these shows has taken so much from them and love them and been taken care of. There's never been any, you know, issues like that. So, you know, what we're doing obviously works. And uh, uh, there was a bit of controversy around the push when it first aired on Channel 4. And I don't really read too much response-wise because uh-huh. it's very hard to know what's a real response and what's just a sort of, you know, the media finding a story just to draw you back to that news source, which mm. is the media, which has nothing to do with the real opinion. It's just a little It's easy loop to spin a lot of what you do as well to make it sound Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are outraged and this and I don't know, are they outraged? Darren Brown, the magic man, he's trying to influence people to kill each other. What's that? Yeah. The dark arts he's gonna get Yeah, and of course the shows are never about that. The shows are always always have I what I try and do is mix a, a kind of dramatic hook, a kind of one line thing that would make you go, Oh, I want to watch that, but also with a a good reason for for doing it yeah so what kinds of stuff have you read about that area of psychology then that whole way of influencing people or or the extent to which people can be influenced i'm thinking of the stanford prison experiment and stanley milgram's electric shock stuff and all yes which we of course we recreated i did a thing called the heist years ago and it was really it was fascinating. And the, that Milgram experiment... So the Milgram experiment, first of all, is... You've got somebody in a room, apparently wired up, to have electric shock delivered. And, but they're in on it, and they're not really having any electric shocks. But in the other room um, is the subject of the experiment, who's apparently doing a sort of memory test with the person that's rigged up in the other room. And the uh, person that's rigged up, the actor, is apparently giving wrong or right answers. And the point is the subject has to deliver an electric shock every time they get it wrong, and then this shock gets bigger and bigger and bigger... And it was to see when would people stop. There's no reason for them to do it other than a guy in a white coat is telling them to do it, the guy that's leading the experiment. And Milgram asked the scientific community, what what percentage of people do you think would administer a fatal electric shock that was clearly going to be fatal? And then there's just silence sort of on the other end. It looks like, you know, it sounds like the other person's died. And the scientific community said it'd be like something like 0.1% of people would do it. And it was about 50% that people would happily do it just because this guy is telling them to do it. So it was about obedience, really, is what the thing was about. And Milgram's relatives had been in the uh, concentration camp, so it was a particular point of interest to him as to why good people will do bad things. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, then, the, there was a, it got a lot of bad press, and it started a move to make sure that these sorts of experiments were ethically done, which is sort of interesting because... As far as I know, everybody that took part in the experiment was fine with it. There's sort of stories flying around that people weren't or someone killed themselves, but I, I don't think any of that's true as far as I know. I think the story is one of the scientific community being embarrassed right. and therefore clamping down on anything like that. 
happening again. But I think the reality of it was it was perfectly um, fine for the people involved. I may be wrong. Somebody may have other information on it. But from what I understand from academic psychologists, that's, that story is the case that actually, you know, it was fine. But it's certainly a rich source of material for me because you now can't do that sort of thing in any clinical setting. But, you, of course, doing it on TV is a very different world, the sort of... Uh, the sort of the the goalposts and the you know it's all all a little bit different. So um, yeah, I've I've delved into that kind of thing uh, a few times um, and found more or less the same thing. Yeah, well, it was. I mean, we did it with ten people, um, but it was pretty much yeah fifty percent. I think it's even it's over fifty percent actually. Will will administer that fatal shock? Perhaps especially in the context of entertainment where they feel well, they didn't know part of this. They didn't know they were being oh, filmed because okay. yeah, that, I mean that's another thing that is a. A helpful thing to use when people do know they're being filmed. Things change a lot, and in quite a few of the stunts that are done, we have to create an environment where they have no idea, so that you know you're getting an honest result and not just people playing up to the cameras. Of um, so uh, they didn't know, and I mean, even one of the guys was complaining that the thing wasn't going up high enough because he'd reached the end of the, and there were still more questions left for the the test that he was apparently giving. So he was saying, "Oh, you need more, uh, you need need more buttons." <laughs> um, so yeah, it was uh, it was kind of extraordinary, and. Um, the Stanford Prison Experiment was the other one you mentioned, where uh, which I think, again, has a lot of mythology around it, but essentially people falling into these roles of aggressors and Yeah, students victims. who were given the roles of either prison guards or prisoners. Yeah, yeah. And within a few days, they started uh, inhabiting these roles so so much that they were just brutalising the guards. Brutalising yeah. the From what prisoners. I know, though, it's just that there were question marks over the sort of protocol around the experiment. So I it might be one of those things that maybe if you did it again wouldn't quite hold up in the same way which is another thing it's always very important with these things isn't it is that sometimes things happen once but they don't really then stand up which is why people can point to you know scientific evidence for pretty much any mad belief but mm-hmm. it's it's not about one experiment holding up it's whether that experiment gets peer-reviewed and whether it, you know that really holds up that's the uh, that's the key yeah does that awareness of people's willingness to be influenced or obey authority have you ever found yourself thinking about that in practical terms in your everyday life or have you ever sort of exploited that i really no i i'm not i think i'm just not quite made of the right stuff compared to how it is on tv i it's like there's a part of me when i go out and do my shows and i'm on tour i get to be like this you know immensely charismatic version of myself which is lovely it's a lovely feeling to go out and do that it's not quite me and i, I think i i mean it's me but it's in terms of that kind of psychological game playing that would just be uh, exhausting so no i don't really i i don't think about i think the only time where it's ever it's helpful is because essentially all it comes down to is seeing the world from other people's perspectives rather than just your own mm-hmm. and that's can sound a bit glib it's easier said than done so i think in times you know a friend or a partner that's depressed or upset and those times when you genuinely want to be of help to somebody i think my kind of skill base whatever that is is helpful because we often tend to switch into a pattern where we we can't get out of our own perspective and i think genuinely you know seeing things from other people's is helpful there but no in terms of manipulating and getting upgrades or whatever seducing people all those things that people might imagine no i've never quite it's never really been me all right then Is that disappointing? Well, I just think you're lying. (laughs) I am.
So you started out doing hypnosis, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, university is how I started. How did you learn that then? Did you teach yourself? Yes, of course, yeah, it was the days before, you know, YouTube and so on. So I um, I saw a hypnotist, a guy called Martin Taylor, at university at Bristol in my first year. I was studying law uh, and German, and I went and saw him perform, and I left that night going, that's what I'm going to do. And it wasn't the kind of show where people were sort of embarrassed and made to look stupid, which I think might have put me off. It was just fascinating. So I got every book that I could, borrowed, stole, bought, whatever I could, and just started doing it, started doing it with fellow students. I remember this, I had this one sort of watershed moment with it. So lots of people would come and knock on my door because I was, you know, the guy yeah. that would do that. So This is in the days when you looked like a yes. sort of crazy comic book guy. Yeah, yeah, cape. Long and hair, cape. I was just a bit of a dick struggling for attention, I think, and hypnosis was, you know, great for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, so I remember, so when people would come over and get hypnotised, if they were responsive, I'd tell them under hypnosis, if you come back and I click my fingers and tell you to sleep, you will go straight to sleep. And then somebody came who I thought I'd seen before and told that to. I said, OK, sit down and sleep. I clicked my fingers, they went straight out. And at the end of the session, we spoke and I realised they'd never come and see me before at all. So I couldn't work out, well, why did they respond to me clicking my fingers? Why did they go to sleep? Uh, when I t- if I hadn't given them that suggestion before. And realised in that moment that it wasn't really about the sort of techniques that I was using. It wasn't about the sort of scripts that I was learning and this sort of 20-minute process of hypnosis. More than anything, it was in the moment my confidence and their belief that made it work. So that was a definite moment of sort of real learning. Uh, And I think you do learn it just from doing it again and again and again. Does it say in the books what hypnosis actually is? It's the big question, isn't it? uh, You're um, altering someone's... the way someone's brain works? Like your... your... (sighs) mental state or somewhere between um, consciousness and sleep or well there used to be two schools of thought one saying it was a special brain state the other one saying oh it's just kind of behavior just sort of encouraging people to kind of maybe not quite play along but sort of role play at a very deep level and and i think nowadays it's often that those two schools of thought have kind of merged but i used to at the end of my hypnosis shows i'd make myself invisible and let's say if I pick up this cup here that it's, you know, floating through the air, so you'd see the cup floating through the air. Mm. Or at least the audience would perceive you reacting to a floating cup. But I used to then get everyone back up on stage and I would talk to them about what was your actual experience while that cup was floating around. So let's say you've got ten people. You'd have some people at one end going, I, to be honest, by that point, I, I kind of was just sort of playing along. It felt a bit too much to go put my hand up and stop the show and say, do you know what, I can see you, this is silly. So you'd have a couple of those. Then you'd have people going, well, I kind of knew it was you, but I had to react. Every like emotional part of me had to react like that was just floating. So I was screaming, and I meant it, I felt it, but I, yeah, I kind of knew it was you as well. Um, so through, they're sort of playing along as well a little well, bit. Well, but they can't not, you know, they just, they're caught up. And like, it's like, I guess like an actor really immersed in a role. Uh-huh. They still know they're acting, they know they're on stage, but in terms of... They're in the zone. What you're sort of, yeah, you're in the zone. And then people at the other end that wouldn't accept that it was me doing it, just presumed it was on wires and couldn't see how that could have been me at all. And they were fully experiencing a hallucination of the thing floating. Brackets, you never know whether they're being honest. Are they just saying that because they want to appear like the best subjects to the audience? I mean, you never really know. You never quite know what someone's experience is. So I see it as a kind of... Uh, th- there's a clearly a personality trait that is suggestibility, which is the thing that makes us, you know, respond to a placebo or unquestioningly adopt the the opinions of some expert that we admire in a subject and all those things where just ideas just fall very comfortably into our heads and then just have have quite a powerful effect on us and some people are more 
open to that than others. Some people And that's are, nothing to do because nothing to do with gullibility or, 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 or intelligence no, necessarily. No, 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 not yeah. at all. Not at all. And it'll be different from one situation to another. I'm a bad hypnotic subject, but I'm sure I'm very prone to some of the other areas of suggestibility. So I think it just it taps into that. Um, in terms of what you're doing, you're just presenting ideas in the most compelling way and using all sorts of different types of motivation from uh you know flattery and clever little language patterns but you're just motivating people towards that sort of behavior and then the ones that are just sort of wired in the right way like that will really pick up on it i had a it's a classic hypnotic stunt where you make somebody eat an onion mm-hmm. and think it's a delicious apple right and uh i remember talking to andy my kind of co-creator andy and co-host, andy nyman many years ago we we're talking about doing this stuff on stage but without the hypnosis just trying to cut straight to the kind of the end effect. So then the question is, if you took all the hypnosis away, all the kind of mojo, would people just do it anyway if they were told to? What's the deal? And he said, I bet you can just eat an onion, can't you? And he went to my fridge, took out an onion, took a big bite of it, and went, there, look, it's fine, it's fine. It's absolutely fine to do. So he's motivated there by something which is kind of proving a point. Mm. Uh, it'd be very different if I said, I dare you to eat an onion. Go on, I dare you, it's in my fridge. Obviously, then his psychological state would be very different. Sure, he wouldn't be able to do it. It'd be disgusting. He'd be, oh, maybe not daring Andy. I think Andy probably would. But it's a different, it's just psychologically, it's a different situation. So suddenly there he is eating an onion happily which on stage looks like proof of some altered state of mind, because how could anybody do that? So it's this really grey, fascinating area, and I I treat it like it's that. I don't treat it like it's a um, special state of mind. I treat it like it's a kind of thing that just brings out a a potential for for a behaviour. But then I get surprised by things that people do and the ways they behave under hypnosis that they... The A will be very difficult to fake, for example, just by any sort of role-playing. Like, we did a thing on The Assassin, which involved a guy getting into an ice bath and just laying there very happily. And it was freezing, freezing water. And he, I mean, you can't... No amount of sort of, oh, well, I'll just do that. I mean, you got, well, that'd be very, very hard to do. And the clinical hypnotists who were with me, we were having a bit of a kind of um, behind-the-scenes bet as to whether or not people would do... Because we were testing it to see how far can you push it. They didn't think he'd do it, and, and he did, which was... Which was exciting, so that was surprising. Or occasionally... And that's a bit like walking over hot coals. Yeah, it? I guess it is. I've never done that. I don't right. I don't know too much about that. That's exactly what's going on there. But certainly this was um, fascinating to, to mm. see. And then other things like, you know, people... Often I'll have people in an audience in a stage show standing, hypnotised, for want of a better word. And you might get things like shaking. So some people will shake. Now, they, don't, they wouldn't know to do that. That isn't a kind of a role-playing... I'm just going along with the idea of being hit because why would you, why would you shake? And that's one of those things that I see quite a lot with people, which suggests that you know there's some kind of shift happening somewhere. Because why would it elicit that response? You can understand why somebody might dance around on stage with a mop, thinking it's a, you know, you can understand why any because people do that stuff when they're drunk, perhaps. So yeah. that, that's easy. But little little things, little sort of physiological things that they wouldn't know to just do. Suggests it's a bit more interesting than just a sort of role-playing as well. So I, uh, I'm i probably as clueless as you are as to exactly yeah. what it is at the end of the day. How long does it take to hypnotise a person generally? It varies. So, and it depends at what point you say that the hypnosis has started. So with my shows, stage shows, I want to create often the feeling that I can just click my fingers and make it happen. Mm. So you... I should stop clicking my fingers while I'm talking. It's not a toy, and I, I'm sorry if anything... If anything happens. Um, <laughs> so uh, what tends to happen in the shows is that 
stuff's already happened to pick out the more suggestible people already. People have already responded to something that's happened before, and then it's out of those people that I'll do the next bit, so I know they're kind of already, a lot of the work's already done by that point. I can often do the, a clicky finger thing or a, hypnotize someone in a handshake right when they come up on stage, because I know that moment is very bewildering for them, and it's they're just odd coming up, up on stage. Yeah. That's kind of part of the shaking thing as well, and maybe in a way, is that they're just in a state of... Yes, absolutely. It's kind of a nervous, yeah, absolutely, kind of a nervous loop that we get into. But it makes us very suggestible coming up Mm. on stage. So, again, you can create a, a, it can happen seemingly in an instant. Other times, if I just sat down with somebody cold who wanted to, not that I do this kind of thing, but, you know, stop smoking or something, I'd probably spend 20 minutes talking them gradually into a, into a state where there's no need for any kind of, you know, theatre around it. Yeah. just create an effect. So it varies, and it varies entirely on the, on the, on the person. And your parents tried that on you at, at a certain point when you were younger, right? When oh, you I did, were... yeah. I went, to see, I went to see a hypnotherapist when I was much young. I was very, very twitchy. I had that... I, I'm still a little bit twitchy, but I'm very, very twitchy when I was young. And uh, You knocked so your to... knees so much you bruised them badly. Yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, I, just, I used to have all sorts of... Um... When did you start knocking them? Did you, did you do it one day and think, hey, this is cool? Yeah, it's like, oh, that feels really that satisfying, feels slash extremely painful. I'll do that guy. whenever I think about it, and I won't be able to not do it. It's classic suggestion. It's auto-suggestion. And mystifying when you're young and frightening and yeah. frustrating for your parents. And uh, I remember I went to see a, went to a concert in... Berlin, Alfred Brendel giving the, the Beethoven piano sonatas. Uh, I mean, a you know, beautiful <laughs> chamber piece, absolute silence. And my thing at the time was intense, loud sniffing. Oh, wow. <laughs> but like real kind of snort. I mean, huge. And I basically cleared out my row by the second half and I came back. It was no one sat there. <laughs> Just excruciating. I um, thought you were like some coke fiend. Yeah, probably some very young coke fiend. So I, um, uh, yeah, I went to see the hypnotherapist who didn't do anything. And uh, I remember opening my eyes at one point to see what was going on while he was talking. And he just had a tape playing. He'd gone out of the room. Oh. Um, <laughs> so after that point, I used to open my eyes and just, you know, I remember getting up, looking around his room, looking at his, uh, the um, certificates on the wall. So that didn't work at all. But it got me off games, which was the main thing, because okay. Tuesday afternoon was rugby afternoon. And I was not interested in Were that. Were you excited, though, about the idea of being hypnotised? Did you want it to work? Uh, I didn't know anything about it. it. It really all was about getting off sport. That was my only motivation. The only time I've ever responded to it at all, and this might be a thing for people to try at home, it was quite an interesting uh, thing. It was at a conference I went to. It was a conference for NLP. I don't know if you ever come across oh, that. Oh, neuro-linguistic, neuro-linguistic programming. programming. Yeah, it was, yeah. Very, it was a sort of a, a fishy and uh, a slippery craft, but some of it is uh, yes. interesting. And bits of it here and there, I think, are John worthwhile. Ronson did a good piece about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, and yes, there are elements that he found useful in. Yes, uh, I think a lot of it's sort of borrowed from here and there anyway. So yeah. it's sort of difficult to pin down exactly what is NLP as opposed to the mm-hmm. various places that it comes from. But I did one. This is the only time I've ever found myself responding to it, and uh, everybody split into two, which sounds odd, doesn't it? Split into pairs, and I. So I was with this uh, lady. We, you sit down, you close your eyes, and you begin to describe a, a scene together that you just just both sort of imagine as you go along. So a, a sort of a relaxing scene. So she said, uh, I'm laying on a beach. So, of course, I then imagine laying on a beach. And I say, oh, I can... There's sand beneath me. I'm running my fingers in the sand. And then she adds to that, oh, there's the seagull. I can hear the seagull. And you're just sort of... My memory of this is I just started off just talking and describing such things. And, of course, you begin to sort of begin to imagine them. And the next thing I knew... An end was called to the experiment, but I had been on a beach, absolutely been on a beach, experiencing all of that, and then opened my eyes and I was, you know, literally back in the room. Um, that's the only time I've had a kind of um, experience of being kind of 
in any way sort of, you know, taken away by... In by some that. kind of altered state. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, I'm just a terrible, terrible subject. Yeah. Hopeless. One thing that's very uh, seductive about what you do and some of those psychological techniques that you use as part of your shows is the practical applications for some of them. Mm. For me, it was remembering people's names. And I got one of your books oh, because right, I yeah. heard that uh, it contained some tips. Yeah. What are the main ways that you do that? The, the trick with that, any sort of memory technique, and these are not mine, these go back... Back to the ancient Greeks, really, they were they were kind of the first, is to, you just work with what the brain naturally does, which is to make pictures, that silly pictures that link one thing to another, just visual associations. We do it all the time, very naturally anyway. So you just, you work with that. So if you want to remember people's names, you do have to listen to the name when they tell you, which is most, most of the time where we go wrong, we just don't really listen yeah. when people say it. And you connect that, you connect the, the name or whatever the name reminds you of, to maybe, you know, what they're wearing or something about them. So when you see them again later at the party, you go, ah, yes. So, yes. Hello, I'm Angela Redmond. Angela Redmond. So you'd go, Angela, Angel. So you make an image, first of all, from the name. So Angela would give you an angel. And if it was you, unusually, um, you're in a striking blue jacket, which I know if I see you later, you'll be wearing. Gets very confusing if people change clothes, this technique. So, you know, I just imagine an angel in a blue cycling jacket. And as long as that image is bizarre... And it has to be bizarre, otherwise it doesn't work. That just sits there and you forget about it. And then later when you see the blue cycling jacket, you go, oh, it's the angel. Oh, Angela, yes. So it's great. You can, uh, if, you're, if you're like me, the sort of person that isn't, um, doesn't love parties, it gives you something to do. And yeah. you get to be very charming at the end and go around and you know, say goodbye to everybody uh, by name. I use it on stage a lot. Because when people come up on stage, I need to remember their names. And, and again, it's a nice thing if I send them back at the end and I can remember everyone's names. My problem is that it takes me too long. You have to have the presence of mind to do it in the instant. Yes. So you're in a noisy party. You get introduced to three people in quick succession. And you have to, yeah. There yeah. isn't the time to go, wait, 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 wait. I'm, t- I'm trying to formulate no, some No, you don't. Kind but of... what you do is you zone, you zone out a moment later. Just make sure you hear the name. Yeah. And just sort of, sort of log it. And then a moment later... Perhaps while they're talking, (laughs) zone out and then do it. It takes five seconds. Then you know you've got it. And then on stage, uh, this happens so much. People come up on stage. Of course, I remember their names. I do exactly that. I meet them at stage door, by which point they put their coat on and I've no idea who they are. Can't remember the names at all. Then I'm embarrassed because they go, oh, you remember my name? I was on stage. We did the thing. Yeah. And I, I, they're, purely a, you know, they're purely a stripy shirt to me at that point. Yeah. So that, that happens. As long as you have to do it with facial features or something that you know won't change. Because uh-huh. then you might, if you see them again 10 years from you know, then, if you can remember the name, that's, that's lovely. But they won't be wearing the same clothes. Right. I think that's the element that I hadn't got. I'd been doing it purely on the sound of the name. I was constructing images based yes. on the actual words. That's right. only one half of it. Yeah, you then need to link half. it to 
something about them. Something physical. Yeah. And the other great thing for remembering stuff in general is the memory palace. Memory palace. Yes, so we are back to the Greeks here. The um, what I do a lot at night if I um, need to remember a stuff to do the next day, but I'm too sleepy to you know get up and write it down or put it in my phone, whatever. I have a route. This is the Loki system, um, which is a Greek an old Greek technique. So you, it's just brilliant. So if you pick a route that you're very familiar with, so the route to your house, along the street to your house, or wherever, as long as there's a few features along that like a post box or a tree or a zebra crossing or or, the, or a shop or whatever things that you'd, you'd be, you wouldn't have to think about you'd know were there and then you do the same thing you you um there's something you have to remember like i've got to take my suit to the dry cleaners you make a, a an image of that that's bold and strange like a gleaming bright white suit that's so bright you can't even look at it and you you would place that at the first location on this very familiar route so if that's a post box you imagine dressing the post box in this gleaming white suit and then you are done you forget it and then there's another thing you put at the next location the next thing goes at the next location and um you always use the same locations you always use the same route you don't have to think about that because that's that's all very familiar and then when you need to remember what was that list of things you just walk the route so the first thing you or you're going to go to the post box why is there a gleaming white suit around it oh yeah i've got to take the suit to the dry cleaners um and then the next one and the next one and the next one and it works beautifully and the point is it's effortless it sounds, when you describe it, it sounds like, oh, that's quite a lot of work, but it isn't. And you suddenly realise you can uh, remember a hundred things and then recite them backwards. You just do the route backwards. You can, these, these are things that look like, again, like a superpower, but they're not. They're actually quite straightforward. But yeah, it's, that's, that's the idea of a memory palace. And I first came across it reading uh, Silence of the Lambs because Lecter, Hannibal Lecter, does it. He needs Clarice's phone number. So he... Um, goes into his memory palace and walks around to the room of, you know, addresses and phone numbers that he has, and there's some bizarre statue configuration, which he then pulls apart and decodes and has... uh, Because the statue is very easy to remember. It's a bizarre mix of, uh, you know, strange things cobbled together. Yeah. So, yeah, that stuff I do use, because it really is genuinely... It's sort of fun, and it is effortless, Mm. and it works. And in the book, there was a a list of 20 words that I said, look, it's just a demonstration. Here's 20 words. First of all, try and learn them and see how far you can get. And, of course, it's very difficult. And now don't try, but I'll just talk you through how you can link the first picture to the second picture and the second picture to the third. And that book came out, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, and every couple of months somebody comes up to me and recites that list of words. So I can almost still do it myself because I get reminded of it Uh every now and then. Oh, that's great. I love stuff like that. And um, did you read The Undoing Project? No, I don't know that. Oh, that's Michael Lewis, um, the guy that wrote Moneyball and uh, The Big Short. Right. And that's him writing about uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman's partnership. Right. And there's some good quotes from Tversky there who had this very pragmatic approach to all sorts of things that was quite clinical and cutting through all the bullshit. Mm. He had this thing about avoiding the whole business of the round of goodbyes at parties mm. and all that stuff he would say just you just, just get leave. up and you start to leave and if someone says where are you going you'll find something to say yeah it will come to you but if you want to go just go yeah and, and then you lie and tell people i tried to find you and say goodbye and i couldn't but thanks ever so much for yeah, yeah, yeah. i know it doesn't always work that's the thing it's like someone like me i think i have tried that in the past and 
and you leave the party just slightly traumatised, going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was yeah. bad. They would have seen through that. As if you yourself are that bothered when someone's left your own events yeah. without having I said know, goodbye. I know, it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? I was at, a, I was at a, a friend's party once, and I was... Someone was trying out a, a polygraph on me, like a, a lie a lie detector. Oh, yeah. So just on a laptop thing. So I was just rigged up, had a thing on my, a clippy thing on my finger. And um, he'd been asking me these questions and we were all watching the, you know, a group of us there watching. It's a good party. Watching my, yeah, it was fun. Watching my lies and truth, you know, come up on the, um, and obviously when you have a lie, the line on this graph goes, woo, you know, yeah. right up. And we'd done this for a while. And while we were talking, um, a guy popped his head around the door who I'd been talking to earlier. And said, oh, sorry, just heading off to Aaron, but, you know, nice to meet you. And I said, oh, uh, lovely to meet you. And as I said that, this line went, woo, like that. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And uh, apparently he never spoke to the host of the party again. He was so uh, humiliated by the experience. <laughs> that was awful. Polygraph busted. Mm. Oh, mate. <laughs> Don't do polygraph tests at parties. Never. That was interesting and a really great ball. Great ball. Great ball. One of the things I enjoyed about Happy, your book, was the section on death. And I didn't expect to enjoy it because mm. I don't like death. No, me neither. It's one of my least favourite things. I give it a thumbs down. I don't like to think about it. And I like to avoid thinking about it whenever I can. And I think most people are the same, aren't they? Some yeah. people really hate thinking about it. Yes. And the yeah. mere mention of it in this podcast will have made some people reach for the off button. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I totally sympathise. But you talk about it really entertainingly and interestingly, and you talk about coming to terms with some of your own fears. But did you ever have a a sort of obsession about it? Was it ever out of control or something? No, no, no. I've never had what I think of as a fear of death, which I think some people do. However, uh, but it does happen, doesn't it? As you sort of, you know, we are middle-aged, handsome men, and you do start to just, particularly because, you know, your parents start to kind of get very old or frail and friends' parents die if your own aren't. And there's just, a, you become aware of it, you become of your own mortality, you start to feel yourself falling apart, little bits here and there, and aches yeah. and pains don't go away, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, uh, yeah, it is, it's become of, of interest. What I find really interesting about it and what that bit of the book was ultimately about, I think, is that what we've been left with over the last two, three hundred years is, uh, since the Enlightenment, is a stripping away of, you know, superstition, religious thinking, etc., etc., all of which is wonderful in many ways. But the flip side of that, a downside, is that we have lost touch with a lot of cultural myths and narratives that actually support us and hold us in important ways. So death, so particularly, I think, morbid superstitions have, have sort of, you know, particularly sort of sniffed at. So death becomes one of those things that now there's no meaning, there's no narrative attached to it. So it just becomes scary and lonely and confusing for people when they're caught up in it or know someone that's caught up in it. The only narrative we sort of have around it is this idea of a brave battle that somebody 
mm-hmm. is fight. That's the kind of story that gets applied. Somebody was, you know, brave, brave battle. And, all, and that does nothing to make the person who's dying feel any better. Much more likely just to make them feel worse. Makes everybody else feel a little more comfortable. And you know, they're yeah. just obviously doing the best they can. Right. And if I'm battling so bravely, why is this thing not going yeah, away? Yeah, so now I've just got to add failure to my list of yeah. uh, burdens. What we don't do is, you know, we don't live with it. And the 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 result is then that people often become like a sort of cameo part. Somebody said in in their own deaths that you know the main parts are going to the the doctors and the loved ones and everyone else that's sort of making the decisions. And you might feel quite peripheral in your own death and given that the life we lead is about the stories that we tell ourselves and getting those stories right sometimes recognizing them as just stories and living rather more in the present rather than in the middle of a narrative that's always going to be tied to things that have happened or things that are yet to come but being a little you know more in the present is one helpful thing Uh, but another thing that can be helpful is taking ownership of those kind of narratives particularly when we come to that sort of final chapter understanding the importance of closure to those stories is is important. If you watch a film or read a book, the last scene normally makes sense of what's come before. There's a climax, there's a sense of closure normally. Uh, This doesn't happen in life. It's just, you know, it could just be absurd. It just ends. So you often, if you have the chance to forgive who needs forgiving or to end the story in a way that needs ending, you know, if you have that chance, we should... That's something that should be encouraged and is, you know, good for us and also for the people around the person that's dying. Those things are important too. But the stories, uh, we've sort of lost touch with those things that put meaning back into something like death. Do you feel as if you can plan for it? Do you ever find yourself imagining what you will do when that time comes for you? Yeah, I do. I do. I've sort of found myself drawn. There was a lady who came to see my show in Canterbury, um called Deborah years ago, who was, uh, she'd been a nurse and a psychotherapist and she uh, had uh, really bad cancer. And um, Not fun cancer. Not fun cancer. That wasn't the good one. It was the bad one. And I was sort of on a bit like a bucket list for her, really. She wanted to come and say hello. So and then we kept in touch. We became friends and I uh, visited her and we had a correspondence and it led into the section of the book. In fact, this is the, if you've read the book, she's kind of the main character in that last bit. Because it clearly is what she said and others have said is that it can be the most vibrant and extraordinary bit of your life because suddenly like nothing has meaning unless it's finite, right? If we live forever, we might like the idea for a second, but actually everything would very quickly become utterly meaningless Mm. and boring beyond measure. How Um, many Star Wars films do you need to see? Exactly. Yeah. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Yeah. So when things are ending very soon, you know, everything... explodes in terms of you know meaning and importance and even deborah said she wouldn't have swapped that she her and her son it was really just kind of the two of them really and the the son's girlfriend was involved in this relationship sort of as well the three of them were very close but they both said son and mother said that they wouldn't have swapped that time for anything and she was able to appreciate it despite being gradually debilitated yeah absolutely yeah and in almost constant pain and you know um and and the rest of it so it was a really uh, it's extraordinary lessons and not that we need to live each day like it's our last that doesn't make sense but i think what it teaches us is because i think ultimately why death is something that is scares us and this is is deprivation it's not that being dead is going to be horrible because we won't be there to experience that it's not that the idea of eternal blackness and infinity should be that scary because we've already been there before we were born that's happened right and it was fine then and it'll be fine in the future um it's something not the scary part that's not the scary part well and even the even the bit of dying and the bit of all the pain but that would only be the dying bit's only scary if it leads to 
death, otherwise it isn't dying. So when you actually untangle what is it that we don't like, I think the answer is deprivation. That the projects we're involved in now, the people we'd like to see grow up, that are just going to end. The project just being ourselves and our opinions and our... Uh, that thing that is unique to us, the view of the world, would just, get, it'll just mean nothing. It'll mean nothing. It'll just be gone. That's the bit, I think, that is at the heart of why it's, uh, of why it's scary. So that does teach us to be a little less attached to our projects, a little less attached to what, you know, what is yet to come, and root ourselves perhaps more in the present. But people fetishise the present moment uh, at the same time. So I think it's being in the present, but with a contingent future. We are creatures that are going to move forward and, and often don't realise the value of the present until we look back on it and see it in hindsight. So, that, again, that is part of the storytelling. That's part of uh, being in a timeline. Um, but... Uh, as I get older, these things become, yeah, more interesting. Do you find yourself thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, my dad died a couple of years ago, so right. there you go. that really set it going. Uh, to the extent that I was worried it was going to become a preoccupation mm. that yeah. was going to get in the way of things, yeah. that I would become a bit anhedonic, you know, yeah. not really be able to enjoy anything no yeah because yeah, it was just like what's the point yeah it's downhill now yeah i think yeah and i think it's normal to go through a bit of that i yeah. think i think there's a huge amount to, to process people forget often that the um those stages of grief that elizabeth cooper ross was famous for you know denial and anger those they weren't actually about um they weren't about what the grieving person goes through they're about what the person who's dying has to go through to make peace with their own it's all been turned into what what you're expected to go through when you grieve and it wasn't about that it was the person the person who's dying their uh-huh. process but aside from that there is you know it's a, it is a huge thing to go through and i think there's also a sense that i think when you do grieve people are very quick to tell you in the nicest way how you should be feeling or yes. that it's sort of okay or that you know time will heal and so on and i don't know if that's true i think grief is something that is you know it has to sit and just find its own mm-hmm. place and of course time changes things and it will sting a little less but it, you don't it's not like you want to forget it and move on. Why? Why would you? You know, why would you want that? And those memories of the person that just you know sting, particularly in the last days. You don't like. It's not. You don't want to move on from those. Those are things that. Wait, that, Sting is dead. Sting. <laughs> Jesus Christ! This is not the way I wanted to find out. Wait. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcats. 
That was Darren Brown. Very grateful indeed to Darren for making the time to talk to me. And as I said, uh, various links to his stuff and tour dates, etc., in the description of this podcast. Now, look, speaking of tours, I'm on tour next year in 2020 with my book. I can tell you that the book is going to be called Ramble Book. I think we've settled on that now. And uh, that was actually Joe Cornish's suggestion. He said, well, you've got to call it Ramble Book. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking of something a little more up itself and highfalutin, because that's what I'm aiming for. He said, no, you should call it Ramble Book. So that's what I've done. You know, the thing is that I haven't actually finished Ramble Book as I'm speaking. So it feels a little bit odd for me to be plugging a book tour, but there it is. That's the way these things work. You have to do these things in advance. Basically, I will be going around to various places in the UK in May and June of next year. And there is a link in the description of this podcast to all the current dates and links to buy tickets, etc. The shows themselves will be a combination of me reading out bits from the book and then just talking with the audience. Might answer the odd question. No AV, though. No videos, no YouTube comments. Well, actually, that's not entirely true, but no uh, video support. So it's just, it's just me on a stage talking for between 90 minutes and two hours sometimes. With a break, I've seen a few tweets from people complaining that shows in their cities have already sold out and wondering why I'm playing smaller venues. Well, I just thought it would be preferable to play smaller venues. It's always more intimate, especially for that kind of thing. And also, I didn't know how many people were going to want to come along. So if shows do sell out in certain places, I'm sure I'll come back there uh, at some point. You know, the other thing you could do is go to Aberdeen, which isn't selling very well. Somehow, I agreed to play in what seems like a vast theatre in Aberdeen. And um, at the moment there's still quite a few seats left. So there you go, that's an option for you. But it's early days, look. It's not until May, this thing. I'm looking forward to it a lot. I've done a few work-in-progress shows while I've been writing the book, and they've all been very enjoyable and uh, intimate affairs. And I hope the tour will be a similar kind of thing. But yeah, just got to, you know, finish it first. Right, next item on the agenda. I did a radio documentary for Radio 4. It goes out this Monday, the 25th of November, 2019. And it's called Adam Buxton and the Human Horn. It is a 30-minute programme presented by me about the strange tale of the world's weirdest scat singer, William Shuby Taylor, a.k.a. the Human Horn whose voice could be heard at the very beginning of the Adam and Joe show on Channel 4 back in the 90s, if you used to watch that. You remember... Yeah, there you go. That was Shuby Taylor at the beginning of each 
episode of the Adam and Joe show. Anyway, as I said, the Radio 4 show goes out at 4pm on Monday. It should be available online thereafter. I've put a link in the description of the podcast where I think it will appear. But it's a, a great introduction, I think, to Shuby and his unique talents. And it features uh, contributions from Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux, who was responsible for getting me into Shuby in the first place. But the bulk of the work on the programme was done by Sarah Cudden. I'm very grateful to her for getting me to front the programme. But yeah, she was the one that did all the work. And she is from Falling Tree Productions, a name probably familiar to you if you listen to a lot of Radio 4. They do a lot of interesting radio shows, including Shortcuts with comedian Josie Long and loads of other great music documentaries. I didn't realise they'd done quite so many. I looked at a uh, SoundCloud page where they're all collected. I put a link in the description. But if you follow it, you'll find shows on Leonard Cohen, Robert Wyatt, Baghdad Headbangers, Riot Girls, Jeff Buckley, Judy Sill. I mean, there's loads there. Mainly half-hour documentaries. All beautifully produced. They're very good. Falling tree. All right, look, that's enough. That's enough. Rosie! She's loping. Come on. Come on, Rosie. Yeah, she's galloping. Come on, let's have a fly past. Here she comes. Slow fly past. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production assistance on this episode. Thanks to Matt Lamont for his editing on the conversation. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Back next week with more uh, interesting person waffle. All right. Until next we meet, please take extremely good care and bear in mind at all times that for what it's worth, I love you. Bye!